Yeah, we never talked exit. There was no reason or desire to be like, oh, I have to get to another point to get whatever. And the exit was much more about emotional things than it was just money. Like, you know, money is fine. It's a good de-risking as you get older, right? And compared to having all your net worth in one company. But is someone going to keep the brand if they buy us, right? How are they going to treat our employees? How do they see a growth path? We don't want this to just die away, right? Like, what does this mean coming next? What do we do next? We stand today. The Business Method. The business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Ladies and gentlemen, on the mic today, we are joined by an individual who has sold the company he and his partner built for $170 million, David Hauser. David is a serial entrepreneur who has founded or co-founded multiple companies over the years, making his largest exit from grasshopper.com. David and his partner are 100% focused on building companies that focus on rapid growth and delayed gratification for themselves. This is how they took Grasshopper to 1 million in year one, scaling it to 30 million annual revenue and then selling it after 12 years for the amount mentioned earlier for the $170 million. David not only co-founded Grasshopper, he also started Chargeify that was invested into by Mark Cuban himself for half a million dollars over a short three email exchange. David founded Return Path, Superfat, invested in Intercom, Unbounce, Brove, The Hustle, and 50 plus more companies. He is also a founding member of National Entrepreneurs Day and has been featured in Inc.'s magazine 30 Under 30 and he's on the podcast today. David, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, did I get everything right in your intro? I think so. I mean, it's uh, like, it, there's a lot of crap in there. But um, yeah, I mean, really, really, people know know me most for Grasshopper. I think that was the most, you know, biggest company, but also most public because we spent a lot of time and money on advertising. So people would say, oh, I heard it on Sirius XM radio, or I heard it here. And so I think that's where people kind of know me the most from. Gotcha. Um, I, and first, I didn't even know we had a National Entrepreneurs Day, um, and I Googled it. It's November 19th, right? Started in 2010, and President Barack Obama made it actually a national holiday. So what are we supposed to do? It's coming up. It's like in a few weeks here. What are we supposed to do for National Entrepreneurs Day? Yeah, so we haven't spent a lot of time on it in the last few years, but our, our intention really was 
just a day to celebrate entrepreneurs. There's a lot of talk about small businesses and all of these things, but we never really talk about what really would the most important thing, which is entrepreneurs are the lifeblood of our economy, the, the companies that create jobs, right? Like we hear about Google moving to wherever, right? And like, that's marginal, right? Um, but that's what we hear about in the news. And it's really entrepreneurs day-to-day -day building companies that are one, 10 and 20 employee companies, right? Um, that create jobs in this country. So it was a day to just celebrate. I like that. I mean, we have Labor Day and my, my father, actually, that's kind of close to my heart. My dad was a laborer and uh, it was a special holiday for him, right? And a Memorial Day for soldiers and people that have passed. And why not for the people that provide jobs for a country, you know? Yeah. And um, and a lot of people, I don't know, probably see entrepreneurs as the monopoly, uh, monopoly board game type of entrepreneur, but most of us are out there taking risks, losing money, losing our asses, having uh, tension in our relationships because we're starting these businesses and we can't stop because it's naturally in our blood. And, uh, yeah, we need a national entrepreneurs day, but I need something to do, man. Like, like you got to tell me what to do. I'm not a drinker, but can we have a parade or something? You know? <laughs> yeah. I, maybe we, we didn't figure that portion out. Um, maybe we got to add that, but I mean, I think really entrepreneurs go through these massive ups and downs, right. And all, all the people around them as well. So significant others, kids, like they follow these ups and downs and it's a difficult path. Um, it's a very rewarding path but it can be difficult along the way. Absolutely. So I'm in Austin. There's a lot of entrepreneurs down here. So maybe we can get a crew and do a, do a parade, entrepreneur yeah. parade down South Congress or something. Um, so, so that leads me, like I mentioned for a lot of us that are entrepreneurs, it's just kind of in our blood. Like we know that we're going to do that. Even before I knew the concept of what an entrepreneur really was, I was thinking about it before I even uh, convinced myself that I could do something like that because I didn't come from that background. But I think you knew from a really young age, right? Like you, uh, where, when was the first ideas of you being a businessman? Where, where did that come from? Was it just like natural for you? I, I think it, it felt pretty natural. Like I remember being, you know, a young kid and, you know, selling, you know, making and selling jewelry and like trying to do anything that was like, what could I make with my hands to sell? Right. And then, and then I discovered the computer pretty early on. And this was like, you know, Mac, Apple II type computers, like not the most advanced, but like, you know, I remember PageMaker and some of these programs, I'm like, wait a second, like I can build things on the computer that you can click buttons and there's like a little database behind it. And like these things, I was like, I, I, this is what I want to do. I want to build things and I, I'm going to work for myself. Um, and when I look back on it, I think a lot of it just came from me proving that I could be successful, right? Like, I struggled in school, um, had a severe learning disability, was years behind kids in terms of reading and writing, uh, had to go to tutoring multiple days a week for hours. Like, so there was always this kind of hanging over me. And I knew that if I was going to be successful, it was going to be on my own. Yeah. Um, so were you one of these guys that uh, like when you're in your teens, early teens, you're in your parents' basement programming and, yeah. and, and building something online late at night? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've got a few friends that are very close friends that have done that since they were 12 years old. Yeah, I can remember, you know, uh, just before high school and then high school doing web page design. You know, what could I possibly do on the computer and build things and started building my own applications in high school. Um, and yeah, I remember, you know, very vividly. I wanted a Dell computer. It was like the popular thing at the time. It was like 
$3,800, like a lot of money. Um, and my dad said, yeah, you can get it, um, but I'm going to loan you the money uh, and you have to pay me back. And, and that, that was a really great learning experience, right? He could have said, here's the computer and whatever. But then I quickly said, okay, like, what are the things I can do today to start paying this back? So I started doing website design. I started building applications. I, like that just kind of got me going. Um, and did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Yeah, so I'd say it was an interesting mix. My mom had always been in education, so I had a strong influence on the importance of education and learning and uh, those things. And my dad uh, had been an entrepreneur his whole life. His his father, my grandfather, had started a business in New York, you know, a long time ago. So I think that it was there inherently, and I had seen and learned from that. But it was an interesting balance at home, which was there was also a lot of importance placed on learning. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's super important. Yeah. Um, was there was there an emphasis placed on learning entrepreneurial skills or just all sorts of skills in your family? I would just say learning as a whole, right? So my mom was not as attached with, like she wanted me to do well in school, but she also understood that I struggled and I could excel in other ways. So she focused much more on learning as a whole, which could include like, we traveled around the world and she opened that up as a learning experience for us as kids at a very young age. Um, that has nothing to do with school, but it was very interesting to see other parts of the world and experience those things. And um, I think one of the most interesting things I remember back is, um, you know, Redbox where you can rent the DVDs. Like I, I remember seeing this in France years earlier, they had these boxes in the, in kind of, you know, side of stores and walls, like outside where you could get DVDs. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing. And I actually had a conversation with the company that provided the, the technology to Redbox before they started here and Redbox got an exclusivity, but like that type of a learning experience, you can't replicate except for traveling. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, there's still red boxes around. I saw one the yeah. other day in a grocery store. <laughs> I haven't had a DVD player in years and I thought people are still using those. They're, they're still at CVS and Walgreens. And um, I can remember like uh, stopping at a red box before going to the airport, um, you know, before like it was as easy to download movies. And I'm like, all right, I know it's a three hour flight. I'm going to grab two red box DVDs before the airport and then drop them off when I get home. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, um, and then you, you got into business like, well, I mean, you were doing business early, but did you start, was it, did you start Grasshopper when you were in college? Is that right? Or was that another business? Okay. Freshman year in college, right? Uh, so it was sophomore to to junior year that I started it. Um, I had run a bunch of other businesses through my time at college. Um, but Grasshopper was the first one where we had like a more than one employee, like we were scaling it and building it. And I was still going to school. So cut my schedule down to two days a week of school and three days in the office. That's awesome. What'd you do on the weekends? Were you a normal college kid partying and no. chasing girls or no? no. Work. <laughs> <laughs> working, working. <laughs> and, and, and you had a, so you have a partner that, that went through all this with you all 12 years. Right. And he was just a, a buddy of yours and you guys thought, Hey, let's try this thing together and see what no, happens. So we weren't friends at all. Okay. Well, how'd you meet him? So we both went to Babson College. Um, we didn't, we, we were in different kind of circles of friends. We didn't really know each other, but someone said, hey, you guys should meet. You're both thinking about businesses and doing stuff. Like, why don't you talk? And we both had similar ideas at the time. Like, how, how can entrepreneurs be better served with a phone system, right? Like we were both thinking about this concept, not exactly, but together. 
Um, and we just said, you know what, uh, let's try it together. It wasn't the greatest, you know, kind of approach to it, but it worked out tremendously well. And, you know, I think there's a lot of luck in there because people were like, oh, how do you find a business partner? Like, first, it worked. We weren't friends. Uh, we've become friends. So that, that, I think, is a better way to approach it than being friends first and trying to be business partners. Um, we had very complementary skills that didn't overlap. So, you know, we, we knew what I owned and what he owned, right? And there wasn't a lot of conflict between there. Um, and then very quickly, we just built a trust where we could challenge each other and say, no, that's wrong. Or, you know, I don't agree with that. And we're going to do something different. And it worked out. I wish I had a better solution for how to, but it worked. <laughs> right? um, do you think if, if your skills and his skills overlapped a bit more that it would be as of a successful partnership? I think there would have been a lot more conflict. And it's not that it wouldn't have worked. Um, maybe it would have. It would have been a lot more challenging to get through that conflict. And my, my fear or doubt would be, that I, we wouldn't have built that trust, right? Because I think a lot of the trust came from low amounts of conflict with success at the same time, right? Because we were both doing the things we were great at. We were kind of not leaving each other alone, but not getting in each other's business, which built that trust, I think, at a faster pace than it would have otherwise. Did you both finish college? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was a year ahead well, of me. Okay. And so so basically for you're running, your, you're building your business for three you know, the last three years of your college career, right? Um, you know, and you hear the stories about people that are dropping out of college so they can continue to build their business or it's just not for them, that sort of thing. Uh, what made you decide to, both of you guys decide to follow through with college? Yeah. Because you you hit a million in the first year, right? So you didn't necessarily have to keep going through college. Yeah. So I think there's a, a number of things there that came into play. One, I actually had this kind of thought process and conversation before starting college. Because I had an opportunity where I could, you know, I knew I wanted to go to Babson. I got into Babson finally. They probably never should have accepted me based on my grades and whatever else. But I kind of massaged my way in. I went to like every networking event they had. I tried every connection to profess. Like I tried everything. So I, I had been accepted to Babson. Um, and I had an opportunity to work at an internet startup in New York and not go to college. Um, and this was kind of the internet boom and things like there was a lot happening. Um, I was on Broad Street, downtown Manhattan, which is like where all the internet companies were like literally across the street from Wall Street. So we'd see IPOs happening like out the window, right? Like, um, and I came to the realization, probably some influence from my mom that it was important to build a skill set that was reusable over time with education, right? And uh, so I valued that. So once I got to college, there was no question I was going to finish. Um, why did Babson appeal so much to you? Yeah, so it's one of the few schools that specializes in entrepreneurship. There's other schools that have, you know, entrepreneurship programs and, you know, you know, degrees or parts within whatever. Um, but Babson, this was their focus. Um, number one school in entrepreneurship for like 20 straight years now. Um it's, you know, built into the curriculum. So it's not just some people are focusing on it, right? Everyone in their first year goes through a full semester experience where you're building a business. Like it's part of the ethos there. Um, yeah, I love that. And I just decided that's the only school I wanted to go to. Um, were the professors entrepreneurs or former entrepreneurs? Yeah, a lot of them are. Um, 
And, you know, I think there's a hard balance, right? That you need some professors, um, like when you're taking econ and things like that, that are probably a little more academic. But when you're talking about a professor running, you know, business plan and, you know, doing these other types of activities, Babson does a really good job of finding people that have been there and done that and have looked to then add or give back via education compared to people that are just educators. Yeah, I went to grad school and got an MBA and, and looking back on it, I'm shocked like how many educators are not um, experienced entrepreneurs themselves. And uh, yeah, they can give some valuable tips, right? But sometimes it's just like you need you need an, a, a raw entrepreneur in there, that somebody that has really built something, even somebody different than the hired CEO, you know, um, that can tell you what it's like and, and the challenges that entrepreneurs really go through. So that makes sense. Do you think some of that like networking and, and schmoozing um, really helped you get into Babson? Was it, did you meet like a super contact and they like you and they're I like, mean, oh, we'll, we'll get this I, guy in. I, I can't imagine another way I got in. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my grades were not, you know, on target for where they wanted. Um, my SAT scores were okay. Um, I probably excelled in math more than anything else. Um, and yeah, I mean, I got feedback like, look, this is going to be really hard for you to get into and, and such. So I have to assume it helped. So you never pinpointed like the, uh, the contact. Yeah, I mean, I got, I got, a, I got a, a written recommendation from a professor at Babson. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, via a th three connections away from someone I worked with in New York. Um, got me in front of him. Uh, I went, to, I did three tours at the school. So I tried to like figure out who could I kind of talk to and learn and show I'm really interested to. Um, they did a bunch of networking events in New York. I went to every single one of them and showed up. Um, they did one in Rhode Island. I went to that. Like I, I just, anything I saw that said Babson where I could put my face in front of someone, I did. This is like network hacking at such a young age, you know, and, and Tim Ferriss talks about how he did it with Stanford through his book. Um, but I think this is something that's probably not talked about enough because there's a lot of kids out there that probably want to go to different schools and they don't get to go to their school of choice because they don't know that you can really hack a network and and work to meet the right contacts to get the opportunity like you did. Um, maybe that's a course that we should sell out there for kids or something. But. I, I think too, it's just, it's showing genuine interest, right? Like, yeah, I think there's some power in saying, like I said to people, like, this is the only school I want to go to. And here's why, right? I, my essay said that, and here's why, right? Like I showed real interest genuinely for who I was and what I wanted. And I have to assume that there, there was some value in that, right? Cause you, you look at a lot of applications and you need different differentiation, right? Yeah, they enrolled you on attitude, not on grades, I right? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in year one, you guys hit a million um, with Grasshopper, right? So you're sophomore, junior in high school, and, and you hit in college, excuse me, yeah, um, and you hit a million with the company. W what was that like for you guys? Yeah, we didn't even really think of it as a milestone, to be honest with you. Like we were thinking much more in terms of like how do I stop answering all of the customer service phone calls and tickets? Like, how do we have enough money to hire that person, right? Like, those were the metrics we were thinking in terms of growth. Like, how do we start hiring a team behind us to do this better? 
um, and free us up to do other things. And the first hire was a customer service person. Did you guys have an agreement like on a long-term goal? Because I, I could imagine my state of mind when I was a junior in, in college and hit a million bucks, I would be you know going to Las Vegas and you know throwing parties and this sort of thing. Like what, what made you guys different? Yeah, I mean, our long-term goal was we wanted to build a company we loved being at and enjoyed what we were doing. So we never had a financial, like we had a business plan because we went to Babson and we won a business plan competition, right? But that was more built because that's what you were supposed to do, not because that's what we were following. Uh, we just wanted to build something great um, and had no metric like at a million dollars, we're going to do this or at 10 million or anything like that. Um, we just kept growing and that's what we were fueled on growth. Like we wanted to grow. How long until you guys started making metrics like that? Like year five, we want to hit this number, year one, year 10, this sort of thing? I'd say probably three, four years into the business, we started to realize that uh, we had to shift from having a team of what I consider kind of doers, right? Like, hey, Chris, go do this for me, come back. And I just hand out work, like I'm kind of a dispatcher, right? We needed to shift to more strategic people that could accomplish things. And when you have strategic people, you have to give them goals, right? Um, it can't be in your head. You have to communicate it. All of these things that I think a lot of people talk about, we realized that I would say a little too late, but we quickly caught up and created a culture of uh, discipline and process where, you know, goals were very much at the center of that. Did you ever, ever talk exit? Like how long did it take you to talk exit? And did you have a price in your mind that you, or some, some parameters there that you thought when we hit this point where we'll exit? Yeah, we never talked exit. Um, we never had that conversation internally or between us. Um, you know, we both lived in, a, in houses that we liked, you know, drove cars we liked, like they weren't crazy, was like, but like we didn't need anything more, right? So there was no reason or desire to be like, oh, I have to get to another point to get whatever. Um, we lived well within our means um, and well, like we could travel when we wanted. Um, and the exit was much more about emotional things than it was just money. Like, you know, money is fine. Um, it's, a, it's a good de-risking as you get older, right? And compared to having all your net worth in one company. But, you know, really like it was, is someone gonna keep the brand if they buy us, right? Um, how are they gonna treat our employees? Um, you know, how do they see a growth path? Like, we don't want this to just die away, right? Like, what does this mean coming next? Um, what do we do next, right? Like 12 years, identity, all of these things wrapped up into a company. So there was a lot of pieces that were much more emotional than like dollars and cents. Right. Um, I know you guys um, from the very beginning started to invest as much as possible back into, into the company for growth. And um, I've heard you talk about like the difference between lifestyle business and growth oriented business. And you guys were very much a growth oriented business. Could you first like describe the, what you think the difference between those, those two types of businesses are? Yeah. So a lifestyle business is one that, you know, you kind of set metrics like at a million dollars, I can make 500,000 because that's what I need to live. And that's a great way to live. I have no problem with that. Um, a growth business is, I can live on $50,000 and I'm going to invest that 450. I would have been able to take a salary back into the business to grow faster. Right? Like, I think that's the mindset difference. Um, and metrics wise, 
you know, we're looking at like, we want to double every year in the early years and kind of con continue that path or, or faster. That's what I consider to be a growth or scalable business. Um, and then there's some questions about market size, right? Like a lifestyle business usually addresses a smaller addressable market, uh, harder to go after, but highly lucrative, where we looked at a very large market um, that maybe, you know, we had very good margins, but maybe was not as lucrative until you had scale. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so in the early days when you're still in, in university, what, uh, what did you guys decide to pay yourself? Did you pay yourself salary or were you investing everything right back into the business? Yeah. So, I mean, we were investing everything back into the business. Um, I luckily, um, my parents paid for college. Um, very lucky that they were able to do that. Um, my father worked his whole life to provide that to us as kids. Um, and so that, that was kind of college and room and board for that period of time in essence was paid for. So I could kind of forego any salary for a longer period. Um, all I really needed to pay for was my food, which I mean, in college, mac and cheese and whatever the dollar cheapest, Tostino's pizzas, man, the cheapest <laughs> options are right. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, pasta and broccoli because pasta is cheap. Broccoli is cheap. Um, you can make it easily like, um, that type of stuff. So, um, I didn't take any salary in the, in the early years. Uh, the first thing I think I paid for was to replace my car, um, out of the business because leasing it was advantageous and it was something I needed at the time. Um, uh, so as long as possible really is the answer. No salary. And then, so when you started, how long until you started paying yourself salary? Probably, uh, around when I left college. So in the second yeah. and then two and a half years in. And then what did you decide was a good salary for yourself? Cause you're still focused on growth for sure. Um, what did you say? Like, I'm 50,000 is good for me. 40,000. I mean, what were it was thoughts? whatever I needed to pay for my rent, like <laughs> the, the lowest amount possible. Again, um, we didn't really make adjustments to that until much later. Like we were probably doing six, seven, eight million dollars when I started taking a real salary, which was probably about a hundred thousand dollars a year. And then, so I'm curious, like, since you, you forego salary for so long and you're focused on growth, did you notice those habits, um, in your own personal finances? So when you did start taking a salary, uh, were you still living, um, you know, kind of in bare means and then reinvesting into your own investments or retirement funds or, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I've always naturally been that way. I'm pretty budget focused, um, although I do spend on the things I care about. So like, you know, I, today I go, I go to a very fancy or expensive gym considering, right? Um, but I drive the same car I had 10 years ago. So uh, it's more about, you know, where do I value putting money? Um, so I think I've always been that way. Um, I probably made some mistakes when I was younger. I bought a house far too early. That was just a poor investment, but it felt like what you're supposed to do. And it's an asset, you know, and all of these things that were told. Um, so I bought a house pretty early, um, probably a year out of college. Um, that was a poor choice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I I've always seen how do I reduce my living expenses while enjoying my life is kind of that balance. I'm not on the other side of like, just spend whatever. 
you know, 12 years building this baby. So you're out of college. How old are you? Mid thirties when you exited grasshopper. Yeah. Yeah. And what was this? I know this was a part of your identity for so long. So, so how did the opportunity come across your plate? And then what was the conversations that you had with your partner? Some of the more difficult conversations in order to decide this is the route we should go. Yeah. I'm, we never, I don't think we had any difficult conversations between us. We, we've always been pretty much on the same page and we approach it the same way. Um, someone, a friend of mine who their company was acquired by Citrix reached out to us and said, Hey, you know, we want to have a conversation. I'm like, okay, cool. Whatever. Like, don't know what it's about, but sounds good. Whatever. Um, uh, we had a conversation. They asked, you know, some metrics where we were going. It was kind of then becoming clearer what they were asking. Um, we had, you know, a second conversation and they said, look, you know, we were looking to acquire, you know, they've, Citrix has acquired I don't know, 50, 60 companies. So, you know, the corp dev people were on these calls, right? Um, they made it very clear at that point. And our answer was, look, like, we're not interested. Um, we have a clear path. We know what we're going to do in the next six to 12 months. Um, the company's going to grow a lot more. Uh, we're just not interested. So that kind of happened and went away. Um, probably about six months later, they came back and said, oh, let's have another conversation. We said, yeah, things are going, going great. We hit all of our metrics. We're growing. They're like, to be honest with you, we've never had this conversation with a company where they hit their metrics. They're, everyone's always like, we're going to grow. And then they don't, right? Um, so that, that kind of progressed. And then we started asking as an executive team, not just me and my partner, but the whole team, these difficult questions like, you know, what does evaluation look like? Why is this interesting? Um, you know, how do you see this growing moving forward? Uh, and then the other questions I talked about, like, what do they do with the brand? Deeper questions. Once we felt comfortable with that, we then kind of progressed through this path of, you know, is this the right fit? And how much, you know, how much are we going to get paid? And how is it structured? And that those types of questions. Right. Did they, um, so... So when you heard the final number, 170 K, what, what was the click, like the, the turn in your guys's mind or the board's mind, the, the team's mind that made you say, okay, we're going to do this thing. Yeah. So, you know, you look at markets, you know, and what, what kind of the typical valuations and multiples are, and we were at the higher end of that. So more strategic numbers as it's referred to um, compared, you know, when we look at kind of multiples of revenue, um, and, you know, then the other pieces fit together and we said, yeah, like this is a fair price above what we would be willing to pay for the business. And I think that's the ultimate test, right? Which is as a founder, I have near perfect information, right? Like there is no one in the world that has better information about this company than me. And if this is substantially more than I would be willing to pay today, I think it's something that you have to consider. Fair point. Because at the time you guys were doing 30 million, 30 million a year, yeah. right? So multiples of th like the, the general rule is times three, which would be 90 million, but then they paid another 90 million on top of that. Yeah. Right. And so that's kind of hard to refuse. And then you extra 45 million per, per both of you guys is kind of nice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we were the only shareholders. We shared a lot with the team as well, the executive team and all the way through, you know, everyone, even though, you know, people didn't have options because we, we felt uncomfortable promising people options in a company that we never expected to sell felt, felt like a lie. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it was, it was very meaningful differences, um, on a cash basis to us for sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Now I I've heard you talk about, um, hiring and then growth. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting, you know, building a company that's pulling 30 million a year, it takes a lot to, to get to that point. You have to have a really strong team and you have to go through the hardships. Right. But one of the things that, that you mentioned is when you interview a candidate, you ask them uh, to look at their core values and give specific examples of how they live their core values in their business and personal life. And I remember when I went to college, um, I was uh, rushing to be a part of a, f- a fraternity. And so they kind of did that as well. They, they, they wanted to see how my core values matched up with theirs. So is, is how did, where did that come from and, and how did that play out with your hiring process? Yeah. I mean, I think the fraternity is a great example actually, right? Because you want people that all live and breathe that culture together. Right. And like, that's how it works. Right. And although it's not a job or a company, there are positions, there's things that have to get done, right? There's responsibilities. And when you have a group of people that are all living and breathing the values together, all of the rest becomes easier, right? And I think that translates directly to a company, right? So yeah, we're paying people to be there. Yeah, there's job functions, right? Like the hours are a little different than a fraternity, um, but it's the same concept. We all need to work together for a common goal. We all need to be uh, understanding of each other and know how we work, right? And and those values become important. So we went through the beginning of our company without talking about these values. Like we had them inherently and we kind of tried to identify, but we didn't uh, publicly talk about them. We made the mistake. We should have done it much earlier. Once we had voiced these, we integrated them into everything. First hiring, then rewards and recognition, performance um, reviews, things like that. Uh, you know, how do you reward on the back end for bonuses and such? How do you tie those to values, right? What were those values and how did you communicate them to uh, somebody that's you're thinking about hiring? Yeah, so um, at Grasshopper, it was go above and beyond, um, always entrepreneurial, radically passionate, and your team. Um, spelled out Gary, that was our mascot. So we did everything you could imagine to communicate it. We did the simple stuff, it's on the walls, you know, it's on the wiki, it's at the bottom of emails, um, you know, that stuff's easy, right? Because you just do it and it happens. Um, sticky notes, water bottles, whatever, right? Uh, actually, this is the Chargeify core values here that we made a cup, um, it spells out fish, right? So, um, you know, so th- that stuff we can do. Um, what's much more difficult is how do you integrate this into what we do? So rather than saying, Chris, you did a great job saying, Chris, Um, I really appreciate when you went above and beyond for this customer and put a story around it and tell. So now this becomes something that you can tell people. I can tell other people about what Chris did um, with a direct example. Um, We can reward people and catch people doing good things, right? So um, we had a a monthly program where everyone would try to catch other people living these values. And we gave out iPods and iPads. And uh, the end of the year, we gave away a cruise, like, all of these things. So that's rewards and recognition. Um, how do I do it publicly, right? So in uh, daily or weekly meetings or monthly meetings or all hands meetings, I can recognize people um, directly in public based on these values, right? Like those are the hard things that add value. And I think the biggest test is, you know, am I willing to say to someone I've never met 
walk into my office and ask any person at random, what are the values? And they, and I guarantee you, they know that's the type of feeling we should have. And I felt very comfortable. And I tested this many times. Like we had people come in for um, like EO forum entrepreneurs organization. And um, I said to them, like, go walk outside right now at our break and ask any person. I won't tell you who to ask or why. And hundred percent of the time, everyone knew. Yeah. And so you guys, you guys weren't a remote team, right? You were with Chargeify, but yeah, is that right? So, and then so with Grasshopper, we Grasshopper. Had, yeah, we had an office in Needham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Um, we okay. had remote people as well, but there was a core office. Uh, at yeah. Chargeify, we were 100% remote, and all of my companies today are 100% remote. Why are you building remote companies now versus what you did with Grasshopper? Just the times, you know the. Yeah. Tech, times and technology? I think times and technology for sure. When we started Grasshopper, uh, it, it wasn't as common or used at all, really. I remember trying to do this at Grasshopper with a small team I was building internally. And like we were trying to like hack together PlayStations to use for video conferencing and to be online all the time because there was no Zoom. WebEx sucked. Like, it, like there wasn't these tools, right? So it was much harder and we did it. We each had a PlayStation with a video camera and a microphone and we worked together the whole day. It worked, but it was very kludgy, right? Right. What are the, the differences like in the challenges that you have building a company culture with remote versus uh, location office? Yeah, I think the challenges uh, are surprisingly similar. Uh, they're probably exacerbated in a few areas. One, communication, um, and then two, trust, right? So the, the biggest problem that people find with remote is like the question of, are people working? How much are they working? What are they doing? And you have to become very comfortable with the idea that it doesn't matter, right? It, 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 the structure needs to work no matter what time Chris is working or David's working, right? there needs to be opportunity for both asynchronous and synchronous communication, right? There needs to be the right set of work that can be broken up. Like those are things that need to be thought through, um, but those are challenges that exist in an office. They're just hidden under the surface, right? Because I can walk and tap someone on the shoulder and disrupt them, right? That's not necessarily better for communication. It feels easier though, right? Um. So I've heard you talk about, David, the, the challenges of uh, through your growth process of having people on the team that are great at taking you from, you know, one to five million and then different people that need to take you from five to 10, different people that need to take you to 10 to 30. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you had to, um, you know, actually let people go to get the right person on the team. So while growing a strong company culture and a, and a tight knit group, um, what were, what were some of the challenges replacing those people? And then how did those, how did you guys handle those conversations, um, with the former people? Because I, I would guess at this point, they're friends, they're part of your team, you know, they helped you get to where you are. Um, how did that process work out? I mean, these are honestly some of the hardest conversations, right? Like someone you've worked with for three years, intensely building something, growing something together, um, and then have to say, look, like um, moving forward, this is not the right fit for where you are and where the company is. Um, I think the key is just being honest and direct about it. Like 
this is not about us being friends. Um, and I have to be willing as a founder to apply the same logic. If I'm not good for this company at this time and this stage, I need to leave or be in a different position, right? Like, I, I think it goes both ways. Um, so being open and honest about it, very direct, uh, and understanding that it's not personal. Like, there are some times that we can uh, grow from within, and there are some times we can't. I don't know what the metrics are and how they work or if it's based on de department or person or whatever. But when that instance happens, I can promise you one thing. I will tell you and I'll be honest about it. What, what were some of the things that made you recognize that somebody wasn't, um, you know, uh, the person that's going to be the right person to take you to the next level? Yeah, so I think it depends. The, the most glaring one, I think, is uh, kind of management ability, right? So taking someone that's really great at the core skill and then putting them into a management role is often a mistake. And we realized very quickly that, like, I had people on my executive team that were just far better at managing people than I was, right? And they didn't learn that from us. We're not the company to train people on this. Like, they learned this elsewhere, right? And on someone else's dollar and time. Those things, sometimes you have to buy that skill in, right? I think similarly, when you think about, you know, how do you scale an engineering team? Sometimes you need to buy that skill in for someone who has been there and done that four or five, six times and scaled an engineering team from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40, right? Like those skills, yes, you can develop them. We were not the company to train people. Uh, that, so, I mean, that's how I saw that. Did you guys um, ever try to see if there was another, uh, I would imagine you would talk about seeing if there's another role that person could play? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And and how often, just estimation, like, would there be another role that person could play? And, and how often did you have to let that person go? Yeah, I'd say it was far more often there was another role for the person to play, but they didn't want to, right? Because it felt like a demotion or a lateral move and, you know, as kind of not only as humans, but especially as people that like to work in high growth companies, they want to see forward progression and change and not, you know, kind of backwards or lateral. Right. Um, so I think that was more common than anything else. Uh, so the least common was the person who understood that and was willing to take a lateral move. Those people sometimes became our best people in the company, highly dedicated to the culture, love the company, great people, hard workers, and willing to understand and hear the feedback right now here, there's a different role that's better for you. Yeah. Um, I've heard you talk about the, the challenges of selling a company that you spent so many years building and growing. And this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot with entrepreneurs because, uh, most people don't understand it one, and it doesn't get a lot of sympathy because you exit your business, you get a lot of money and then you're not necessarily happy because part of your identity is gone. Right. So after you guys sold grasshopper, what was like the first that those first six months like for you? very challenging. Right. And people want to like kick you when you say that, right. <laughs> like really dude. Yeah. Like, um, and it, it's hard and it's not often talked about, but it's very challenging emotionally to lose that identity and that thing that you've been attached to and what people know you for 
Um, also that sense of kind of accomplishment and need, right? Like as an entrepreneur, people are constantly demanding your time and it's difficult, but you kind of start to thrive on that, right? Like you're needed and, you know, you can add value and you can help progress things. And then all of a sudden you're not, right? Um, and then I think the third component that people don't think about is, you know, money at, at high levels of money actually just adds complexity, stress, and issues, right? Like there's a base level that yes, is important and contributes to happiness. And there's been studies on this, right? Like there's a dispute about what the base level is, but to some extent, it's kind of the ability to live, you know, the way you want without stress, like without stress of knowing how to pay for what you want, right? Uh, whatever that amount is. Beyond that, it's problems. <laughs> it's different problems, <laughs> right? Like more money, more problems. How right? do you how do you do estate planning and tax preparation? Like all these things, right? That's what comes with it. It's not as simple as just putting it in a bank and then sipping on coconuts the rest of your life, is well, it? Well, I mean, you should. I think most people should think about it that way, right? Like I'm a big proponent of take the majority of the money, put it into index funds, low cost, tax loss harvesting, don't look at it, don't touch it. Um, but there's a lot of issues with that, right? Like how do you move things out of your estate so it's not taxable at death? Like how do you deal with, you know, topics with kids, right? Like what does money mean to them? How do you show them that they need to build value and wealth on their own, right? Like my kids won't get any of the wealth I've generated. Um, they'll get education health, you know, uh, help with their first home. After that, they're not getting large amounts of money ever, period. What would be the most that you would give a child? Um, so the way I've structured it, uh, when they turn 30, they get about $30,000 a year. When they turn 40, they get $40,000 a year. Um, really as just a, you know, hopefully I'm still alive, but if I'm not, you know, kind of a gift from dad, you know, that is something they wouldn't otherwise do, maybe towards a car, maybe a vacation, maybe, you know, um, but not enough to change their life, right? Um, I, I don't think there is any reason to give people life-changing money. Uh, I think it is more negative than it is positive. Yeah, that makes sense. So what what is life-changing money for you nowadays compared to, you know, say when you were starting Grasshopper back in college? Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, Life-changing money to me when I was in college was like, uh, could I get enough money to make a down payment to buy a house, <laughs> right? Um, like, could I could I kind of save forty thousand dollars towards a down payment? <laughs> um, that that to me was the kind of big the big number, right? Um, today, um, I, I have enough money that I don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, so honestly, I don't look at it like it's not part of my activities. Um, my activities do include things like how do I optimize it or, you know, how do I maintain it or how do I contribute to charity and how do I do things like that? But I, you know, I'm still in the same house I was before I sold the company, same car. Um, I go to an expensive gym that costs, I don't know, 180 bucks a month. Like I don't spend a lot. <laughs> um, I just, I just don't naturally. Right. Um, you mentioned too that, um, you feel that that more money brings you less freedom. I think a lot of people see it the opposite, right? That they're, they're going to have more freedom. But there's an optimal point. Like I know that uh, at 300k personal 
uh, incoming year for me gives me the optimal freedom to do pretty much everything that I can really care about doing and anything over that, you know, I don't know if I could get any, it would bring any more freedom in my life or happiness. So um, do you have that marker for you? And then maybe talk about like some of the, uh, why you feel there's less freedom in your life when you have a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's probably 200, maybe $250,000 a year um, to, you know, live the way that we want to live. Right. Um, and, uh, for some people that sounds like a lot for some people that sounds like not a lot, but, um, that's just for us. Right. And I think it's very dependent on the person and what they want to do. And I don't, I, I also don't pass judgment on it. Like it doesn't really matter. It's an individual choice. Right. Um, so that's for us. Um, I think when you start to have money beyond that, the, the freedoms that get taken away are, you know, the extra work that goes into it. Like, how do I, you know, optimize taxes? Um, now all of these things cost more. CPAs are more, people are more, like, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, now that structure has changed where I'm not getting, you know, W-2 wages, like things are more complex and tax returns are never on time. And like all of these things start to add up, right? And then I think you have external pressure of why are you not spending more? Why are you spending so much? Like all of these pressures, because it's a, then becomes a public thing, right? Where people want to talk about it. I, I don't think it really matters. Um, and, and then two, I think people have a lot of expectations either for, you know, what you should do for them, you know, how you should spend money. Um, all of those takeaway freedoms again, right? Like if we never talked about it, it's much easier. Right. And at a few hundred thousand dollars, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. What are some ways that, uh, you personally, I know you mentioned just putting it in index funds and and letting it sit, but what are some ways that you, um, things you do to make sure you maximize your freedom, um, with a significant amount of money? Yeah. Um, so one, I try to remove it from any sort of daily, thought process or anything like never check the markets. I don't care if they go up or down. Um, that doesn't affect my life. Like that's a highly, you know, stressful thing to be on that you can't control. So the easiest thing for things you can't control is to remove them. Right. So I want to remove anything that, um, may cause me stress that I can't control. Uh, and then, um, you know, make sure that I have that base level of living. So there's no questions about that. And then how do I use my money to further happiness and learning? And for me, learning is very much tied to happiness. So when I think about investments and things that I do with the money that I, that I kind of set aside to play with, right? It's more about learning opportunities than it is return on capital. Like I'm okay if I lose that money, like it's not going to change my life. But if I can get a hundred learning opportunities out of that money, I'm going to be way happier. Nice. Well, you mentioned, I know, uh, on your website, you have your core values, experience over things, um, catch people doing good things. How you do one thing is how you do everything. Work hard, be nice. Life begins at the edge. So let's talk about these from a mindset perspective. I've always valued experience over things, um, and money. And sometimes actually that's gotten me in trouble. Uh, but, um, what are ways that you apply that in your life, valuing experience over things? Yeah. So we think about this a lot. 
Um, and I think the, the best example is travel, right? Um, and, you know, am I willing to spend almost unlimited amounts of money on travel experiences? Absolutely. Do I want to buy a new car? No, right? Like that to me is the comparison, right? And do I look to save money for experiences? Never, right? Like if the budget was $1,000 and we spent 2000, that's fine. I would not be happy if that was the case for groceries or, you know, something that we can control and doesn't offer an experience, right? Um, so like my kids said, hey, we want to uh, plant some stuff in the backyard. I spent far too much money building a garden, right? Um, and beautiful beds. And we have someone who comes weekly and works with the kids and educates them. But that's an experience that they will never, you know, forget, right? So was it, you know, the right way to spend money? Was it, you know, on budget? No. Does it make a lot of sense? No, we can buy vegetables for less, right? Like, whatever. But that's an experience. Where do you think that value comes from for you? I mean, I think my parents instilled it in me, but it really became crystallized uh, with my girlfriend uh, who just said like, very specifically, she didn't voice it in those words, but she's like, I don't care what we have at home. I don't care where we live. I don't like, but I want to be able to take the kids to Disney World today if I want to. I want to be able to, you know, build memories with them if they cost zero dollars or a thousand dollars without question. So like she helped me understand that of like how important uh, activity together as a family on Saturday is. And it may cost us nothing. But if we value that experience, that's what's important. Yeah. Well, sounds like you got a good girlfriend there. Um, catch people doing good things. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think we spend too much time in our lives, you know, complaining and finding the bad things, right? Like, ah, David didn't do this. He didn't clean the dishes or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And we, we become very negative focused where when we flip that and we try to find people doing good things is better for us uh, ourselves as well as everyone around us right? I find the things I like and I praise people for it. Um, and I'm actively out there looking for what people are doing good, right? And good is my definition, right? But still, my mindset has changed and flipped the opposite direction, which I think is the powerful part. I like that a lot. What are some examples of you um, catching somebody doing good things and giving them praise? Yeah, so I think it can be the easiest things, which is you know, uh, so like taking the trash out, right? My oldest daughter, that's her responsibility on whatever day of the week it is. And I could, I could communicate this in two different ways. One is, hey, can you please do this? And then if it doesn't happen, I can bitch and moan about it and say, you're in trouble or whatever. Or I can say, I appreciate that you broke down the extra boxes and put them in the, in the recycling, right? And it's the little things that you start to notice and you've said in so many words, you did a good job doing it. You did it on time, you know, but I caught you doing an activity I wanted in a positive light, right? So I think it, the, the smallest things have the biggest impact. Where do you think that came from? So this is a concept that I, I stole from uh, a speaker a long time ago, um, and it helped me change my mindset. So I really wanted to integrate it into our family. Uh, we built a program like like this at Grasshopper, which was um, catch catch people doing our core values. Cat like it was this kind of concept, um, but 
I remember her talk about this and she said internally at the company, it just changed culture when people started looking for positives. And I wanted that in my life and it became very impactful for me. So your next one is, is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I used to be a hundred percent on board with that. And then I kind of, uh, started to not believe that because you know, the way that I run in and invest my business and my time with my business and, and exercise and health sometimes is much different, uh, than the way that I walk a dog or take care of a baby or make my bed. And so I started to know those little things, uh, see those little things come up. And then I had a conversation with another fellow entrepreneur and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not bought into that. How you do one thing is how you do everything. Um, motto. So what's your thoughts on it? Just curious. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there is some balance in there, but uh, I think what it really indicates is um, how do I address things that I may not value, but other people value, right? I think that's the important question um, because there are things we can all deprioritize, right? Like I don't really want to wash my car. So like, I probably don't do it right. Like I, like we can deprioritize that, but it's also probably not important to someone around me. Um, however, if, if making the bed is important to other, another person that I value, I should do that the way I do everything. Right. Like that, I think is the, the differentiator there. Um, so for me, like I value hard work, I value dedication. So I'm probably overly dedicated to things. I'm obsessive. Like there's problems in this, but my filter is always, do I care about it or does someone I care about care about? It? I like that a lot um, because we were talking under the context of, well, if you try to do everything with excellence, then you'll just have a massive to-do list and you'll never, uh, you know, have focus on your priorities on the things that really matter. But I do like that, that mindset that makes much more sense. Okay. So we have their work hard and be nice, work hard and be nice. What's that about? Yeah. So, um, I'm a big believer in hard work pays off. Like look at this, the story for how I got into college, right? Like that's just hard work that wasn't necessarily intelligence. It wasn't, you know, connections. It wasn't anything. That was just time and hard work. Um, and so that, that's one piece of it. The other balance to that is, you know, you don't want to be an asshole, right? Like that's not good for anyone, for you or anyone around you. So it's important to be nice and to think of other people. And, uh, to me, this is the balance much like, you know, the difference of winning at any cost compared to the desire to win right? And I want to build in me and the people around me the desire to win um, while taking into account how do I do it? And that's the be nice. Um, where does work smart play into there? So work smart, I think, has a lot to do with prioritization. Uh, how do I, you know, get more done with limited amounts of time? Um the last core value there you have life begins at the edge. What, what is the edge for you? Yeah. So this, there was a lot of dispute about this core value internally in our family. Um, and you know, I, I, I kind of had to lobby for it. Um, and more importantly, I had to explain kind of my thought around it, which is your question is very key. The edge is dependent on the person. 
Um, so this core value is much more about, you know, learning experiences, growth and change happen when we're uncomfortable, right? And my uncomfortable area is different than yours or my kids or anyone else's, but we all need to get to that point to, to, to grow. And I think growth is very important. So, um, and I gave a lot of examples for the family internally, like, you know, uh, these growth opportunities are all what we want. Um, and people weren't clear on how do we get there. And so the clarity became, you know, the edge, that uncomfortable area. Um, and that just became much more clear for the family. So I won them over <laughs> on the core value. Um, but I do believe in this a lot uh, in every part of life. Um, from physical, like working out of the gym, uh, to mental, to, um, you know, learning, um, all of these things are all about, you know, how do you get to that uncomfortable area? So I have, um, like a goal setting process that I use on a regular basis where I set four goals every quarter, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual that makes, that kind of tracks me and kind of measures me, helps me hold myself accountable to stay on the edge on a regular basis for you. Like, how do you, how do you hold yourself accountable to make sure that you're, you are staying on the edge on a regular basis? It's a really interesting question. Cause I, I've thought about this a lot, like, you know, at the company, we had quarterly value, quarterly goals and, you know, all of these things. And I said, I should do this for myself. And I did it for I don't know, probably two years and I didn't get a lot of value out of it personally. So I stopped doing it, um, not because it's bad to do, but it wasn't working for me. Um, so I think much more about um, how do I answer? Am I living these values on a regular basis and then using them as a filter for the, the decisions I make? Right. So if it's a company I invest in, does it meet one of these values? Right. Does it make me uncomfortable? Am I learning? Am I growing? Like, you know, can I filter my decisions based on these values? That to me is how I use them on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, then, you know, how do we communicate internally as a family about them? I think is the next level of importance, which is, um, you know, we could set family goals the family is just not set up for that. Like that's not what they're on board for. I could force it on them. Right. But that's not what they want. Um, but I can talk about the values and rewards and recognition and recognize, I appreciate, you know, that you got to an edge and you grew. Right. And here's how it happened. Like those types of things I can do. It sounds that, uh, sounds like that giving your, your, your family and your children, um, a legacy of an education, that helps them have an early start in life is, is pretty important because you're valuing experiences and you're talking to, to them about living on the edge. Um, so what's your, do you have like a, a regular, you know, um, breakout session with dad class that you have with the kids or is this just ongoing that you think about, Oh, what can I teach my kids? Like, how can I teach them about money and entrepreneurship and, and goal setting and following their passion, this sort of thing. Um, what's your mindset on that? What's your thoughts on that? My, my mindset's mostly on the ladder of like, how do I integrate this into life and provide those opportunities to see them, to have them see me doing these things. Um, and like, what are those opportunities I can create naturally in the activities that we're doing compared to like sit down and talk about it. I don't think many people, you know, can hear that when that happens, like, right. Oh, like, let's sit down and talk about it. Yeah, 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 whatever. Like even with employees, it's hard for them to hear what you're saying in those types of 
settings compared to in the moment when something happens, boom, and then have a little conversation about it. Show them how I value money or how, you know, I care about things, right? Like, also um, oh, the travel, right? So um, I, I will never pay for a first class ticket, but I will use points, right? So I'll happily communicate to my kids, like, you understand that A, it took me a lot of years in my life to even be able to sit here. Um, and B, I will never pay for this. So don't expect that I'll ever pay for it for you. Uh, <laughs> like it's just never going to happen. But uh -huh. if you appreciate this experience and it's something you want, you better work hard, right? Nice. And that's in the moment while we're sitting there, right? That's much easier than at the dinner table talking about it. It's make it like making sure they don't have expectations that dad's always going to provide or they they expect, you know, a job making 250,000. I mean, once once they're old enough, they're going to go sit in the back of the plane. Um, now, like when they're six, like I can't really do that. I don't think the flight attendant would be too happy, <laughs> but you know, uh, I mean, that's how I flew for, you know, 25 years of my life with my mom and had amazing experiences. Yeah. What are some books, David, that were really life-changing for you? I've got a handful, um, you know, of books that I can think. Like I read that book and it shifted the trajectory of my life. Do you have any of those? Yeah. So on the business side, I would say uh, Scaling Up or Traction, um, both very similar conceptually. But I mean, we utilize these processes internally and changed our business. So uh, I can't imagine life without one of these books. I don't really care which one. Um, and it's even become a filter for investments. Like if you're not willing to read one of these books and implement some of the things, I'm not gonna invest in your company, right? Like um, it's just, it's how we work, right? Um, on the personal side, like kind of health and growth and mindset, um, I would say the two books that have had, I mean, I love Sapiens. Um, just because I enjoy history and, and, and the viewpoint. Um, and I've read lots of books like it, you know, all of the ones about, you know, guns, germs, and steel and all that stuff. And those weren't life-changing. I think what changed mindset the most was um, The Evolution of Everything um, by Matt Ridley, I believe, uh, and uh, Enlightenment Now. Um, those two books, you know, really helped me understand how positive a time we are living in, even though the news media and other people want us to feel it's a very negative time, right? And I, I don't watch the news I don't anymore. It's been three or four years now, but like the ethos around us is so negative. And these books were just very helpful in saying like, let's look at this at the highest level over tens and twenties and thirties and four, hundreds of years, right? Like what has actually happened to human society? And it's all been very positive. And that trend continues. Yeah. I recently read the the history of my ancestors that immigrated from Europe to Texas. And uh, life was tough, man. Uh, like a great, great, great 
great uncle got kidnapped by the Comanches, you know, half of them got wiped out by the Confederate army, you know, average, average age of life in the mid 1800s was like 45 or the average age of death, excuse me. And, um, and life's good. I mean, just 160, 70 years later, like we have a cushy, cushy life in uh, Western, Western developed countries for sure. I mean, even, and, even when you look at other countries, like as a whole, the world has just gotten better and better and better, right? And there's problems, like I get it, but the viewpoint of understanding that the positivity and that trend continues was very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I know you, like you said, you haven't watched news in three years, but I think you're, from what I've heard, you're pretty disciplined with your social media and your devices. Um, what's the boundaries that you give yourself for, you know, news, social media, computer phones? So I, I don't limit devices like my phone or computer. I still use them at home. I have them by my, like my phones by my nightstand. It's the first thing I read in the morning is my emails on my phone. I know everyone says, don't do that or whatever, but it works for me. So I do that. Um, the things I limit is I have no social media on my phone ever. Um, Okay. None of the apps. None of the apps. I just deleted them. Gone. Um, I have it on my computer only for the fact that it's something I use for business. Um, I don't use it personally. And I probably look at it once a day at the most, right? Because it's not part of my habit. I think the key is if you remove it from habit, you don't have to take it away in total. You don't have to delete your account, right? It's the phone habit, right? Um, and I, and two, like, um, so that, that social media, um, news, I just don't turn on <laughs> like ever. Like, I don't see a reason to, it's just, it's all garbage. <laughs> you ever read a newspaper or anything? No, I consume a lot of online content, but usually from alternative sources. So like, I wouldn't read the New York times website, but I love hacker news because it's well filtered through a lot of topics, usually more, you know, uh, alternative uh, sources, right? Uh, so that's helpful and it's been kind of pre-sorted. So I look at that a few times a day and see like, what are the things filtering to the top? I had a funny thought when you said you don't use, uh, you don't have social media apps on your phone. I thought to myself, well, what do you use your phone for? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh yeah, we, we can call people on those things. <laughs> what do you do? But are you using just for texts and calls? Is that the majority yeah. or, or maybe manic yeah. email? Okay, got it. Um, and, uh, you mentioned traction and scaling up. We interviewed both Gina Wickham and, and Verna Harnish. So listeners, if you guys want to check those interviews out, they're really good. Both those are amazing books. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there, David. Do you have, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tell everybody where we can find you at, but do you have any final tips for the listeners before we wrap up the show? Yeah, sure. So you can find me at davidhauser.com. Um, I write a weekly newsletter, uh, with three to five kind of topics, a lot of the stuff we talked about. So entrepreneurship, finance, health, wellness, um, you know, uh, kind of across the board, really the things that I care about and would want to read myself. So it's kind of been curated and filtered down to my top things in that week. Um, in, in terms of tips, like people ask me this all the time, like as a new entrepreneur or as, you know, what do I do? How do I do? Like my tip to, to everyone and especially during this kind of time in life where things are difficult is just do something that gives you a step forward, right? One little step. Um, each of those steps is a learning opportunity. 
Um, and it's just way better than talking about it, right? And I think the world we live in today uh, values that a lot. And the people that take steps are the winners. Yeah, 100%, man. I love that. We're going to wrap it up there, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. Really appreciate it. Thank hey, you. Chris. Listeners, we're going to sign off. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.